So I better do an introduction, didn't I? Um, oh, yes, so yeah. well, we <laughs> I mustn't stand up and let you see my presenting box of shorts anymore. <laughs> At least you're wearing User shorts. At least you're not in your underwear. That, that, that's, that's, that's the blessing in all of this, the silver cloud. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, we are here today with Brandon Monroe. He is the CEO of Bannerman Resources, uranium player with, uh, Australian uranium player with assets in Namibia. How are you, Brandon? You all right? Yeah, holding up all right. Thanks, Matthew. What about you? All good here. All good. We are housebound. Uh, mentioned. Um, so you've got the kids, kids here. Got the someone cutting trees down the driveway here. So there's a bit of a noise in the background. Uh, or trimming trees uh, in the background. So apologies for that. Um, hopefully, it won't get any louder. Um, but yes, it's it's been uh, conf confusing times, I guess. We're, we've been getting some mixed messages. Um, here, uh, unclear messages from the government around this of COVID-19, this coronavirus pandemic. I think countries are re reacting in different ways, as is our industry, it's a mining industry, but we'll talk about that. So yeah, not, not, not bad, not bad. Surviving. And it has been incredibly dynamic as well. It, it seems like with the best of research and the best strategy formulation, and the best of insights, you've only got about a 14-day shelf life on any of that. It's been quite interesting in terms of having a paper trail associated with keeping a board appraised, for example, and other stakeholders. I look back at what we were doing two weeks ago, and it's really just, it's t almost totally irrelevant now. The, the things are moving so quickly, and our view on things are moving so quickly that you, you need to have a day-by-day -day view on where it's going. It, it is fast moving, dynamic. I'm not sure all of us have all of the facts. Uh, you know, I, I look at, you know, I think one of the things you talked about, and I'm sorry to everyone listening to this and wander around a bit, but it's, I think there's so many interesting things to talk about is um, the way that companies are reacting to this. You know, um, I've been talking to a lot of CEOs who've been saying business as usual, business as usual, and I guess they're worried about share price. And I, you know, again, it may be a topic for further down this conversation because I think people will get a pass on this. They will get some leeway uh, in, by, by the market. Um, I don't know for how long. Um, and you know, taking small measures like oh, we're we're making everyone wash their hands. We're making we're taking the temperatures. They come into the mine. I'm like, I think for the um, for one. Group, that may not be enough, it, you know. And uh, for others, they're saying, "Well, you know, you know, please just, you know, get on with it. You know, you've got a young, healthy, thriving workforce; it'll be fine." And I'm not saying saying that's a very informed view, but it, 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 it's a, a view uh, held by a lot of people. Um, and then you, you know, we've talked, and I know in your article, we've we've looked at um, some some of the companies like Trevally, uh, Newmont, uh, etc., shutting down. And of course, Cameco deciding to make that announcement, which is why we're talking today um, about standing their workforce down for the next four weeks. I find that an incredible thing to do for, for, for a couple of reasons. One, obviously the impact uh, on, on, on the market, but two, obviously they need to look after the safety of their workers. Um, um, I think 
uh, and you talk about indigenous workers in here as well, which is a very, very important piece, but fascinating piece. Um, but it's not going to be four weeks, is it? Well, it's hard to see what will change in four weeks. And as I said in the article, to try and understand that and I guess try and second guess that, you need to look deep into what Cameco's motivations are and possibly the motivations of the other mining companies that have stood down projects. And we've had a range of projects being stood down here in Australia. Uh, everything except the bulks has been affected to some degree. And most mining projects are continuing and carrying on, but it very much comes down to their individual circumstances. So in their release, Cameco pointed to the fact that it is a fly-in-fly-out workforce. Whilst they're at the mine, they do live in close quarters. And once they go off roster, they go back to their communities. So given what we know about the transmissivity of COVID-19, given what we know about potential for transmissibility before symptomatic uh, visibility and given that it's quite difficult to monitor a workforce through testing accurately that's just a risk that they're not prepared to run they don't want to find out seven days after they've had an entire um, portion of their workforce come off roster and go back and mingle with their loved ones in their community their grandparents and all of that type of thing that they then have to put the word out oh sorry we've now had an outbreak at site and it's got the additional element for Cameco, and we've certainly seen this in remote projects in Australia, and that additional element is the vulnerability of Indigenous people. Um, we know through not only the Spanish flu in, 19, in 1919, but also the 2009 influenza epidemic, that it does affect most Indigenous communities in a much greater and disproportionate way. And that is blood that Cameco simply doesn't want on its hands. And again, we're seeing the parallels in Australia with that. And that tends to be the risk tolerance that very few corporations, particularly big corporations like the majors, have got. They will not be synonymous with an outbreak in an Indigenous community. Absolutely. And, and it's worth just a touch on that because I, I do think it's really interesting because, you know, you look at some of the factors that have been studied, you know, around the um, geographic, demographic, the socioeconomic, cultural, um, health status, um, health behaviours, and I think, and, and the ge genetic pre predisposition. And I think some of the studies are certainly that you pointed out, and I went and we went and looked at some others, there's no... It's not any one thing. It's just that it's the that kind of collective environment makes it particularly uh, make, makes the indigenous uh, workers particularly susceptible. And you know, and I think it may be a, a conversation for another time to kind of deep dive in there because it's it's it's, it's truly fascinating. You know, the the things that affect peoples in an area more than more than others. And I, I, I'm like I said, I'd love to you know sit and talk to you about that a little bit more, but I agree with you, Cameco and others shouldn't be playing roulette with that. That's, that's unacceptable. Um, on the other side, again, we had conversations yesterday, people are talking about the economic damage and economic outcomes being more severe on peoples than the coronavirus. I mean, where, where, where do you stand? Well, it's, it's one of those deep philosophical discussions that 
our society just hasn't had in recent years. Um, and it's a, it's a discussion that goes deep into the way that our healthcare systems are structured and the view that society has on productive versus non-productive members of its um, workforce and, and many, many things that go well beyond what you and I can um, hope to uh, further in terms of debate. Uh, but what it comes down to at the moment is we're getting strong messages from the medical sector and medical advisors, but some of the other messages aren't being heard quite so strongly. So, for example, uh, how many people will die of domestic violence because of shut-ins in very difficult circumstances where women aren't able to escape dangerous situations very effectively where people are becoming claustrophobic, they're becoming frustrated, they main outlet for entertainment as booze and what they might download on the internet and so forth. So there's many dimensions. It, it goes to depression, it goes to suicide, it goes to the ability of family units and social units and community units to cope in the economic aftermath. There's just so much to unravel here. Um, but what is clear is that governments around the world are realising that the A game at the moment is to give them the chance to catch up with health systems, which I guess brings us back to the point about minds that operate in remote communities that don't have those health systems, they don't have ventilators amongst them, they don't have ICU beds. Uh, that is a risk that goes well beyond economic or safety risks. It's an existential risk that goes to the, the pure basis of a mining company's social licence. And if they're proven in hindsight, as these things always are, to be reckless like that, then we're going to see a, a serious reshuffling of the deck chairs in terms of mining company brands. And Cameco is very on top of that, as are Kazadamprom, as are BHP, as are Rio Tinto, um, all of whom are operating large-scale uranium mines at the moment. But those are, those are the big names. They're, they're worth billions. It's, it's more damaging for them in the long term, you know, production being affected on some of their mines for three months, six months. It, yes, it's inconvenient, but yes, possibly the market will understand and they can play catch up, I, I guess. But for some of the mid-tiers or small, small producers, it's life or death. So decisions are being made under extreme pressure because it, you know, it could mean the company, it could mean those jobs. Um, and, you know, those are the conversations we've been having with multiple CEOs over the last three weeks who tell us yep. that they will do everything they can to kind of keep the lights up. These are the ones fortunate enough to have cash to be able to have that option um, mm -hmm. uh, because not too many people are raising money in the moment. I've seen a handful. Um, so those, 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 they're all coming in from different perspectives. So I, I take your point about people need to watch their brand here because it, it's, 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 it's societal. It's not production and, and, and revenues per, per se is the only driver here. There are other drivers here after we get through this. And, you know, we, we will get through this for sure. But what, I, what I noticed was that the analysts like you and the, with the board are having a hell of a time trying to keep up on a daily basis as to what the impact is going to be on stock levels, inventories, and diametrically opposing views. We're going to have a glut. We're going to have a deficit. What's your take? Well, it's been very interesting to look at, say, base metals, for example, 
because you're trying to balance two equations. One is what's going to happen to the supply side of things, mine stoppages in particular, and then, well, how's that going to be affected by what's happening on the demand side of things, which in many cases is driven by how quickly China can come back on. But in uranium, it's a lot easier than that because the demand side, as I'll be talking about in the coming days and with the second part of my series on this, the demand side is predictable. Uh, for a start, nuclear power will continue to run at almost its current um, trajectory and current output. It's a preferred form of power in crises, as we've seen, whether it's hurricanes or polar vortexes or other forms of disruption. Nuclear power is always the go-to. It can operate with um, less uh, work, or a great, it's got more resiliency to workforce going down. Um, a nuclear power plant, as you probably know, it operates almost like a large laboratory. So many of the adaptations that other mines and um, power plants need to make for this type of a situation, it's already built into the DNA of nuclear power plant operators with um, the way that they operate there. But the main thing and the most important thing and what governments are very aware of is that nuclear power plants aren't exposed to any supply chain issue other than labour. Um, so, for example, in Europe, um, by Euratom rules, the nuclear power plants have to have minimum reloads sitting fabricated at site for exactly this type of situation. So they could keep going for two years as long as they can get a, a sufficient proportion of their workforce showing up at work each day, they can continue to produce power for two years. You can't say that for coal. Uh, you can't say that for gas even. It, but coal's probably the biggest example where you've got a risk at the power plant, you've got a risk at transport, and you've got a risk at mine. And most coal stockpiles are running in the weeks, potentially months, but certainly not years like you have with nuclear power. So I don't see any substantial demand dent into the reactor burn-up that we've got over the next couple of years because of what we're seeing. And in fact, it'll be preferentially used over other power sources to keep the lights on and to keep societies functioning and, and to be quite frank, to ensure that major societies and communities don't descend into bedlam. So that's so much easier than trying to pick a winner in, a, you know, in, in another metal. Um, and what we've also got as an advantage, I suppose, when you're trying to analyse this sector, is it's already off the bottom. Like we've been crawling on the bottom for years. And in particular, from a supply point of view, we're already at a supply deficit. So everything that we're seeing in terms of uncertainty on supply, such as Cameco announcing at least a four-week stand-down of Cigar Lake, uh, it's kind of easy in a way because it just goes to the upside in uranium. And that makes it easy to get our head around. Now, whether any investors are brave enough to buy the dip at the moment on the strength of that, well, <laughs> we'll just have to wait and see. And there'll be many a story told in a few months' time, I think, about who bought at what price and whether they were yeah. brave and whether that were or not. I mean, we, we, we've gone in. We've gone in. Um, because, you know, I've you know, been looking at this quite opaque messed up commodity for the last year and we understand a bit more than we did a year ago um and you know we're brave enough to say okay i think this is, is a space that makes sense now these certainly these these prices it's certainly um 
wouldn't say it's option money, but it, you know, it's quite attractive. Um, I think that some of the pl- some of the players in this space, you know, you know, are going to are going to struggle, and I think there's going to be a bit of M and A, and um, you know, all all of that kind of good stuff that investors want to talk about, and you know, it's part of the fun of investing, right? Um, but more seriously than that, you know, the the supply demand side has been mixed up this week by Cameco's announcement. And I want to, I want to bring it back to that because we've talked about the social responsibility side. It was, it was a decision made for all the right hum, human, humanitarian reasons. And I agree with that. But a byproduct of that is we've just knocked out a lot of supply potentially because this thing's not, I say, it's not going to go on for four weeks. It's, it's, it's going to go on longer. Um, how much longer? I don't know. Is it, is it six months? Is it 12? I don't know. But these things don't, you don't switch them on and off, you know, like, like a light, light switch here. Um, it's going to have a big or impact. Like a or like, or a, like yes. a It might well be that we're on off, on off for the next six months as but, governments but even, allow things to return to normal. But as you say, you can't do that with mine. Hmm. You can't you can't do that with the mind, and and, it's, and this isn't just Cameco. It's Cameco this week. Who's it next week, and who's it the week after? And people have talked about you know, uh, Kazat on prom. They've talked about Olympic Dam. They've talked about you know all you know, the, um, Rossing, etc. You know, so there's a lot of there's a lot of what ifs and buts, and next week will be different again. But this week, to me, it looks like the supply side is gonna get worse and it already we're already running a deficit that's my understanding of it um so and you say the demand side hasn't changed so what do you think the implications of outside of the 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 workers etc what do you think the supply side implications are on this story this week so the first thing is that what we saw when, say, MacArthur River was put down for 10 months yeah. is the demand side of the equation really failed to recognise what seemed pretty clear writing on the wall at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, utilities don't have a lot of skills in mining. They don't tend to have advisors um, with deep experience in mining. And they just didn't see that MacArthur River would be off for some time. And when you talk to many of them and you see some of the surveys that the consultants run, most of them assume that once the price turns around, MacArthur River will be back on instantly. And we know inside the sector that that's highly unlikely and uh, Cameco provided guidance on that. And so the first thing is there is an element of a boiling frog here. Um, In terms of taking, if you're a fuel buyer, you probably figure, well, maybe it will only be four weeks and we only need to wait for four weeks to know if I'm right or not rather than taking a view that it's going to be, for example, four months, which is Mm. one of the cases that I'm working with right now. Um, The other thing is that the incremental production losses for the mines that carry on, they don't get taken into account until really it all gets tallied up at the end of the year and we say, oh, gee, even the ones that weren't affected by shutdowns and other reactions. Well, how did they lose 8% of their annual production? Oh, well, it was because the fuel didn't arrive on time. They didn't get sulfur for their acid or they had to shut down the camp for a week because they ran out of toilet paper or bread or something like that. Yeah. So there's a lot of boiling frog here. And 
it's compounded in this situation because utilities don't like uncertainty and there are a lot of uncertainties that are compounding at the moment, including regulatory uncertainties in the US. So what I think what the implication is in the short term is, and it's an, it's an oft-cited example for uranium, but the whole idea of a slow-motion train wreck isn't a bad analogy to look at what we've got, where that train's sort of running towards the bridge that's fallen down, and that bridge that's fallen down is probably about November of this year, um, which will coincide with the lifting of uncertainties in the US, particularly around uh, the presidential elections and so on. So, so what, are we, what are we missing here? Be, you know, right at the beginning, I said, look, there's, um, you know, you use that phrase, you know, it defies economic rationale. But we all must have been missing something here because the market hasn't changed in two, two three years. I mean, you know, and I, you know, I go back and I read these articles from, you know, the great and the good in the industry and consistently been calling it wrong. It's, it's got to be now. It's got to be now. And I think people are slowly waking up to perhaps this year it may may not well sorry up until this announcement from Cameco, they've they were going well actually potentially because of the u.s elections and you know, a few a few other things it's probably looking towards the end of this year is the reality before we'll see some meaningful movement by the utilities in terms of contracts okay and obviously subsequently spot price um i think this Cameco thing or sorry do, can you tell me do you think that this Cameco announcement is the prelude to utilities having to wake up and go, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get and hit my um, buy targets because the price is one thing, but if you don't get the, the volumes that you, you've been targeted with getting, you, you've got a big problem here. Haven't you? Not yet, I think is my answer. Um, Why? They know that because they know that Cameco will cover its contracts. So there won't be any utilities looking at that going, oh, I wonder if we're going to miss our delivery next month or the month after that. Um, They know that Cameco can go to its Inkai joint venture in Kazakhstan and probably negotiate with its joint venture partner there to get some. Um, Cameco seemingly was able to get an awful lot of pounds out of the market without moving the price when they were harvesting pounds for MacArthur River, for example. Uh, and if it's only down for four weeks, well, that's one and a half million pounds out of the market potentially, which you know isn't, isn't such a big number that it's really gonna get the utilities particularly concerned. And what's more interesting, I think, which isn't really being talked about at the moment, is the fact that the traders are, aren't able at the moment to get finance for the carry trade. So when that shoe drops with the utilities, I think that'll be of greater concern. And one of the things, and and this partially answers your question about, you know, how is it that we haven't seen long-term contracting when uh, certainly the economic rationale is pushing strongly for it. Uh, We know what's been a trigger for that, which is uncertainty, regulatory uncertainty in the US with Section 232 and the Nuclear Fuel Working Group. But the way the utilities have been able to get away with it, if I can put it that way, or um, perhaps a better way to say it is that the reason why the utilities have been able to defer without it immediately hurting their business is because they've been able to kick the can down the road with short-term carry trade agreements. And they've also been able to buy time by acquiring or procuring 
pounds of uranium, but not as yellow cake in the can, but rather as UF6 and as EUP. So they don't have to buy it for what they need in two years' time because they can top up closer to the time by those downstream products. So ex now, um, can you can you just explain that for people, again, who may not be sure. au fait, um, because the UF6 and the uh, EUP, well, explain what that is and obviously if you can, the size of those markets, because again, those markets must be contracting too. Exactly, absolutely. So um, I, I suppose apologies for anyone who watched the last time we got together and chatted, but um, traditionally the way that the nuclear power in, uh, sector works is utilities would buy yellow cake, which is uranium concentrate, which has been mined and milled. U308 comes in a barrel, highly stable, long shelf life, easy to store and secure. So they would then own that and they would transport it to a conversion facility which converts it into a form that can then be enriched. And that converted form is called UF6 or uranium hexafluoride, which is now a gas and it sits in canisters. So that's the first step. Now, because they own the U308, they still own the UF6. And in the meantime, they've paid for the service of conversion, which has got a price to it. Then what happens is that UF6 is taken, transported to an enrichment facility where the utilities pay for the services of enrichment and they end up with an enriched form of UF6 that can then go through the various forms of fabrication, which then turn it into fuel pellets and into reactor rods. So before Fukushima, they were simply services. You'd pay for conversion and you'd pay for what is called SWU, separative work units, which is the way that you put a price on the service of enrichment. Now, what happened in Fukushima is 10% of the world's reactors went down very, very quickly and the supply chain didn't respond. So in conversion, there was a build-up of excess conversion in the form of UF6. And then in enrichment, there was a build-up of enriched UF6, which is called EUP or enriched uranium product. And then on top of that, excess capacity in the enrichment market started to generate underfeeding, which is additional EUP created by that excess capacity. So what then happened is, in the old days, we just had the U308 market. Now we had a UF6 market and an EUP market. And for a utilities procurement strategy, they've then got three choices. Um, that whole process through the fabrication of the fuel rods takes about two years. So choice number one, do I buy U308 two years from when I need it? Choice number two, do I buy a UF6 maybe 18 months to 12 months before I need it? Or choice number three, do I buy EUP only six months before I need it? And that's what the utilities have been able to do. They've been able to balance those forms of buying so that they effectively can delay decisions on contracting. And what we've now seen to answer your question about those markets contract uh, tightening is we've seen an absolute tightening in UF6 and that's because the capacity uh, expansion from Fukushima has been totally reversed because Convidine closed down the Honeywell facility in the US. So all of a sudden we went from an excess of conversion availability to a deficit of conversion availability. Um, what we're seeing is also pressure on enrichment um, it's still excess, but the SWU price has gone up by about 50%. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the conversion price went up by 400%, as you well know, Matthew. 
So those markets aren't particularly available to utilities anymore. It's very, very hard to get UF6 and it's getting a lot harder to get EUP. And on top of that, the other mechanism that a utility has for deferring, let's say by a year, a decision to go out into the contract market is they can get something on the carry trade. So in other words, uh, a trader comes to them and says, look, if I buy half a million pounds in the market, in the spot market now, uh, you know, we'll end up paying say $26 for that. I'll go to an investment bank and I'll finance that and I'll put their couple of percent on, we'll add our fees onto that. And in three, or f- three years time or maybe two years time, we can give it for you at a price of X. And that's where we're seeing the midterm market coming in at say $31, $32. So uh, I've heard that described as crack cocaine to utilities because it really enables them to wait and see how things develop because they can just fill that next year of need through the carry trade. And it hasn't been done in such big volumes that it's put pressure on the spot market. So the trader for say a 300,000 pound order, if they do it carefully, they can, they can get that without actually moving the price at all. And then it's just the margin and the cost of financing. And it's lulled utilities and market commentators and some of the consultants into this false sense of security. Because they say, well, hang on a sec, these deals are being done three years out at $31 or $32. So therefore, that's the price. And I've had debates with people about the forward price. And in a sense, it is if the whole deficit was only £300,000. But if they all start doing it, there's going to be millions of pounds of demand on the carry trade, all needing to be acquired in the spot market at once, which, of course, will produce a, a shooting spot price. So my point that I just made is all of the financing uncertainty that we've got at the moment means that those financing facilities aren't available for the carry trade and we've seen that disappear. So that is more likely to have an impact on the mindset of utilities than the current level of supply disruption that we're seeing at Cigar Lake. And can you put a time on that? I mean, when does it, when does it start getting uncomfortable? I think it's by the end of the year. I think... Okay. I think there's, there's two, you've got competing discomforts here for a utility. You've got the uncertainty discomfort and the potential to be wrong in hindsight. And for a fuel buyer, they're not, you know, it's, they're not paid like an investment banker to take big risks. They're paid to just do their job and be in lockstep with, with the best practice of their peers. Okay. Okay, so for, for non-political reasons, because I think people were attributing the, the time, the timing's the same. People are estimating the same uh, timeline, but for different reasons. One being politics, and you were saying, obviously, there's, they have a modicum of control still, but at some point towards the end of this year, that, that risk profile will not be attractive anymore. Okay, that, that's good. Do you mind if we touch, but you, you did give us a clue that your second piece, this, the, this piece that came out last night or today, your time was about supply. You're going to be talking about demand. Do you think the demand story has changed much? You know, we, we've had some great conversations in the, over the past few months about demand. You're saying it's, um, it's, it's predictable because you know, what's being, you know what's out there, what's being used, mm-hmm. the rate at which it's being used. You're looking at what's being built, being, well, actually some of the, de- some reactors due for decommissioning are, are staying on track, but it, it's all easy to monitor and control. So do you see the demand side continuing as is, no major disruptions? Yes, I think 
there might be a couple of percentage points shaved off demand where the odd reactor, um, uh, unlikely that they'd go down, but you might see them load shedding or, or something like that, load following or something like that, um, as industrial demand for power reduces. But essentially the picture is exactly the same in my view. I, I see it as very unlikely that we will see nuclear power plants voluntarily shut down, even if there is a, a significant reduction of industrial demand for electricity as a result of COVID-19. Um, and in any case, the effect on the, the short-term market will be entirely buffered because the, the product that they're not burning while they uh, load follow, for example, um, was bought several years ago. So it doesn't have that immediate impact in the same way that, you know, uh, we're waiting for Chinese factories to turn on and know what their iron ore or coking coal consumption is. I, th I think kind of like the, the, the medical part of this conversation, I, I'm way out of my uh, league here. Because, and, and so are some of these uh, analysts, because again, they're, they're coming, they're not necessarily diametrically opposed, but they're the other side of the line, as it were, um, in terms of what the realities of the drop of uh, power requirements will be. Um, so I, I feel that's going to maybe come out over the next coming months rather than days and weeks. Um, and what's the, what's, the, what's the third in the trilogy that you're, you're going to be looking at, third topic? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a bit more naval gazing, which is, as you know, what I enjoy. That's talking about the longer-term impacts. And by definition, it's going to be a lot less clear, but that's what I enjoy doing. And as you know, I'm involved with World Nuclear Association and we have to project out to 2040, so I'm quite comfortable taking a long-term view on things. So, for example, uh, I would expect that the momentum behind clean energy continues once we emerge out of COVID-19. And interestingly, the respiratory link with the coronavirus implications uh, will most likely hasten the transition from coal to other baseload energy sources at a time when alternatives to nuclear and hydro aren't really available yet. They haven't quite matured to the point that we would need them and disruptions in supply chain for storage, I think will continue to be a problem for some time. So that's an example of a tailwind for nuclear. Um, I, I will identify some potential for uh, relatively minor softening in medium-term demand. I think it's reasonable to expect that there'll be some governmental delays on approving reactors that are in the pipeline. There might be um, some reactors that are experiencing a production or construction delays. So there's a little bit of softening that could be apparent from that, um, although it's largely on the edges. But when, then it gets really interesting if you look at whenever there's been a very significant shift in societies, which typically happens from world wars, but um, it can happen from things like uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and other very close shaves that we have as a species. Um, what typically happens is when it comes to debates, the cards go up in the air and norms such as the attitudes that have not been helpful to the nuclear power industry, they get revisited. And so it's a special opportunity for the nuclear power industry to go back to the factory 
intellectual basis that we've got and use the renaissance of thinking that we would expect to have after COVID-19 to reposition it based on its benefits. And there might well be a correlating discussion that takes place in terms of what is actually realistic to expect from renewable energy rather than the wildly optimistic expectations that a lot of society have got about what it can deliver. So those discussions will take place a bunch across a range of different aspects of our society. Healthcare, of course, being the biggest one, but also the role of capitalism and various other things. But I think there is an opportunity for nuclear power to reassert itself as the optimum form of green power. Then I'll also talk about the supply side because my article that I put out this morning was really about short-term supply impacts, impacts on production of uranium that's taking place this year. But as we've seen, the first of all, we've seen a market that I think is probably going to remain effectively closed to capital raisings for some time, unless we see a really sharp spot price response, it's going to be very hard for uranium companies to raise money. Um, I'm not losing sleep on that, fortunately, because Bannerman's still got $4.5 million in cash, which is more than two years of runway. So we will come out the other end of this and we'll come out strongly because we've got a project that's had all of its work done and it's had all of its money spent. But there, there will be peers of mine who will have a much tougher time of it. And we're already seeing environmental programs delayed, drilling programs delayed, feasibility expenditure paused, and so on. And you, you're going to see that probably place about a one-year spacer in an awful lot of anticipated production. Not to mention the effect that it'll have on exploration, so particularly exploration in remote areas. No one can go in and drill anywhere in the Northern Territory of Australia or large parts of Western Australia because of the risk we were talking about with Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I think will be very interesting is the, the financing of really any energy project, but particularly the financing of uranium companies, will emerge from this crisis looking different. Um, and I postulate that that financing will be a transition and a shift from private financing towards public financing, and in particular via vertically integrated setups, as we've seen with CGN and CNNC, for example. Um, so I'll go into that in quite a bit more detail and quite a bit more depth. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is nuclear power is very well positioned because of its positive correlation to Chinese decision making. Uh, we've got the 14th five-year plan that needs to be pre-released um, in October this year. So everyone, of course, is expecting Chinese stimulus. Uh, what we've seen is the 13th five-year plan wasn't fully achieved in respect of nuclear power. And we've also seen a trend from taking existing approvals of foreign reactor technology and basically plonking a while on one there and saying sorry to the guys who were hoping you were going to build an AP1000 or, or, or another foreign technology. So there's a big opportunity for the Chinese government to direct not only domestic fiscal stimulation via expanding and having a more aggressive nuclear power target in the 14th five-year plan, but also positioning that, as we know, to help with their export industry to help China power out of this crisis. 
So I can see quite a tangible benefit for nuclear power coming in the in the early medium term through the targets put out through the Chinese fourteenth uh, five year plan. It's I, I, there's a few you touched upon a few quite interesting topics there. You know the socioeconomic behavioural dynamics uh, is fascinating because you know how do people how do governments react in times of crises? Um, you know. Something I used to refer to as beanbag uh, politics, which was, um, and it sort of comes from the, when times are good, you know, companies spend a little, a little bit less frugal. They spend money on things they don't need. And you suddenly see these sort of beanbags popping up in offices and they've got people coming in and giving back massages to people at, at desks and so forth. And, the, you know, but the money's no problem, no, no object. And then things go horribly wrong belts are tight and money's um, you know restricted uh, and it's not not available and you know people behave a different way for a time mm-hmm. and time changes their attitude you know after two three years the economics change again and people start behaving the way they always did you know mm-hmm. so we get back to, you know more beanbags get shipped into the company again and um, you know you know you, you talked about you, your hopes uh, the navel gazing, the, the hopes for how we as a society behave after what is the, I think, it, well, I can't remember another pandemic like this in, in my lifetime. There have been incidents in, localized, whether it you know, be you know, Africa or Asia or wherever, but not on this level, unprecedented level before. And I, and I do hope you're right that this socioeconomic behavioral dynamic does change people's minds and it does stay with us. And we do remember for just that little bit longer than we usually do, because if it's not in our backyard, we don't tend to care, right? And I I think that'd be such a shame, but to bring it back to business, I hope that businesses change some of their practices as a result and are more considerate of workforce, for instance. Uh, I know we've got some big topics going on here in terms of the you know, workers' rights, etc. Um, but for you in in uh, nuclear, I guess some of the decisions made have longer term implications. So for uh, maybe the upside for this thing that we're going through with COVID will be longer lasting and m- more positive. Um, do, you, do you think that's the case, or do you think that the politics will come back into it and these adversarial type conversations will continue? Protectionism, etc. Look, it is crystal ball gazing, so you're never too sure. But I do favour that outcome. Um, and for all of those reasons that you described, I think we will emerge as a better world out of this. And clearly, I mean, the nuclear power supply chain, because I believe that nuclear power can make for a much, much better world. Um, but there's other dynamics as well. The other thing I think we will see as a result of this pandemic is I think we'll see a shift to the left in politics, um, which may or may not help nuclear power. It probably depends a lot on how enlightened the environmental groups become, um, because we know those discussions take place behind closed doors. We know that a large proportion of environmental groups have no problem with nuclear power in the context of what we need to do to survive climate change but they're gagged by their organisations or their fear of how they'll be judged by their peers. 
Um, but that remains to be seen. That is a risk for nuclear power, that that conversation doesn't emerge and doesn't mature, and yet we have a shift to the left coming out of this pandemic. But equally, there will be a shift away from libertarian um, attitudes in society and a shift towards centralisation of power, uh, political power, um, particularly as the societies and the economies that have got the strongest degree of political power come out of this pandemic looking an awful lot better than uh, societies that have got more liberty. Um, now, that sort of centralised decision-making, as we've seen in China, for example, is very helpful for nuclear power because you do see a lot more political courage exercised. Um, you see a little bit less of the negative influence of NIMBYs and misinformed uh, interest groups and so on. It, so you've got those two very broad societal dynamics uh, that could both work in favour of nuclear power or could we could end up seeing a balance between the two. And uh, it's fascinating to try and call it, and I'm certainly not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not brave enough either. Um, but I, I, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic to, you know, to, to talk around. And um, my, I know what my hopes are. I mean, I hope that people do start being just a little bit more aware, um, well, with regards to nuclear, being aware of the benefits of nuclear and its current contribution to, to the energy uh, requirements and what it's going to mean going forward. But who knows if, they, if people will. Um, I think that I'm excited for this year to see what, what happens because I, I do think you touched upon the banner on there, and I, I just want to finish off on that one. Okay, I know you've kind of got a 24-month uh, runway there, which is which is great news. Have you changed your thinking about how you're going to approach your project as a result of what's been going on the last couple of years in terms of access to capital? You mentioned it because um, you've got a big project there. We do, we do. It's a very large project, so the. Um, a tango, uh, according to its definitive feasibility study, will produce an average of 7.2 million pounds. It'll make it a top 10 largest producing uranium mine in the world once it's uh, in production. And whilst its capital intensity is very competitive, you can't build an enormous project like that without a reasonable size price tag on it in terms of pre-production yeah. capex. Um, now, we are fortunate in that we are very well positioned should we see the shift towards vertical integration and sovereign funding of uranium supply chains. Um, the first reason it is just so big that it will be extremely appealing to countries that are looking to shore up and secure a long-term supply for their nuclear power programs. Um, but also because it's in Namibia, um, a, it's certainly got a very good operating environment. Um, B, it's got a strong development agenda, which will suit particularly sovereign um, nuclear power operators who want to ensure that they can uh, monitor and control their investment. Um, but thirdly, it doesn't have legal impediments to foreign investment, and in particular, it doesn't have control impediments such as you have in Australia with the Foreign Investment Review Board, such as you have with the laws in Canada against foreign entities owning more than 49% of a uranium project and the exclusive subsoil use contract uh, um, rights that Kazatomprom have got in Kazakhstan, for example. Um, so that puts us at a real advantage. 
The, the other thing that's interesting about our project is it is quite flexible when it comes to scale. Uh, the nature of the ore body is it does outcrop and for the first uh, 50 million pounds, it's got a very, very low stripping ratio. So if we need to adapt to market conditions and we need to have a variety of different scales, we do have the flexibility to do that without losing an awful lot of economic um, value okay, there. Actually, that is contrary to most bulk mining projects where uh, the moment you start getting smaller, you start giving up economies of scale. And that is something that we've got um, some ability to flex on, which is, is obviously very important. And particularly um, if it means we're trying to match the demand profile of a large nuclear power plant program. Okay, interesting. Well, I'd love to hear more about that. You know, we, we should probably do a little session just on Branham and just sort of get an update from you. I know most people are doing their end of year at the moment, so maybe at a time that suits you should um, come back on. We'll do a, do a little session on that because I think, um, we, you know, I don't think we've heard that story from you for a few, few months, actually, six, six months, five months, long time. Things have changed, surely. Um, Brandon, so, thanks so much for today. What a great chat. I'm really excited about your next article. I'm very excited about your next article because this one spun me off into 20 different directions about things that I didn't know anything about. I'm loving the, um, actually the, the, the influenza article uh, itself is just brilliant. So I do encourage people to look at this. I'll, I'll pop up the link um, for people to, um, to this and, um, you know, they should have a read of it. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for thanks for writing it. <laughs> yeah, no, great. Uh, that's great feedback. It uh, makes it very worthwhile to hear that sort of feedback from yourself and others. It's, it's well, nice true. to be able to put some useful information out in a time like it is right now. Well, yeah, yeah. And in, in, in these days where people are not quite sure what's going on, it's nice to sort of, you know, get a nice concise description of what is going on in the marketplace. So look, um, let's catch up again soon. Hope you and your family are well. Stay safe and um, stay in touch. Will do. Great. Thanks for having me. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.